Okay, Acts chapter 17, we're in verses 27 to 29. And if we look at these words, Paul is now in the midst of an incredible sermon. And here's what he says. As we pick up, he's speaking, he was speaking about the tomb of the unknown God, and we clarified how it's quite possible. And I think we're going to see some more evidence today that the philosophers knew that there was a God, and they spoke very highly of God. Paul's going to put that right back at the, uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics today. And all along the way, Paul is talking about how God is neither worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Then we're going to find out today that Paul says he is not basically incarcerated in silver and gold idols. So here's what happens. In verse 27 we read, "...that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that Godhead is, that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And this is what Paul says. And so we're going to stop with those verses. We have plenty of verses to read this morning. And I would like to just say that uh, I think it's important... I'd like to say as an opening today, I remember back when I guess I was around 14 or 15 years old, and we used to go faithfully, all of us, including, of course, Mrs. Doris and Mrs. Roberta, her husband, Pastor Britton, had the Sunday night worship service, I believe it was 7 p.m. over at the church, and one of the things I've never forgotten is how he took, I think it was maybe two Bible verses in the book of Hebrews, and he, I'll bet he, it was, it was, he spent at least three years on two verses. What I love about that is that Pastor Britton found so many treasures in those two verses, he would not leave them until he, out of his heart, taught us what was in those verses. And here's what I see a problem with today. If you're listening to messages on, on the radio, or if you're watching... Um, certain messages on television or you're watching it on YouTube or whatever, you have to understand that what I'm about to say is very obvious and I'm not downing anybody because I understand these ministries, they have to pay big money in order to be on the radio and television. But what they do is if they even try to do expository teaching, they get into a verse, they get in and out of it, give a couple opinions, and that takes about three minutes and the rest of it is some kind of story. And it's so, right. You ever seen that? Right. Yep. Right. It's, or they'll, they'll bring up a movie and talk about a movie for 15 minutes. I mean, he doesn't get enough watching television and movies. Or they'll sing songs from commercials. I've had that, seen that before. And you take in 20 vital minutes, and you're using a tiny percentage of Scripture, and that shows forth, and you can see that in the signs in front of churches all over. 
you know, these signs are a very good opportunity to get the gospel. And here we see the bread of life never goes stale. You know, stuff like that, you know. Come into this church, we have Nemail. And it, instead of having really good doctrine, and my point is, is we're staying here in these verses because every time we go to a new verse here, this is a very important portion of Paul's sermon. And we're going to look at these verses and not really, I don't believe that we need to be in a real hurry because I think there's a lot to learn. So we're going to learn it here. We're going to learn a lot more in chapter 18. And what does Paul mean that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him? You've got to pay attention to this. Because what, what he's really saying here maybe doesn't appear like you might initially think. But here we see, as last week we were talking, that the Lord hath made of one blood all nations to dwell on the earth. And how we're learning how Paul says every man has created with the same blood. Critical race theory has no place in the church. Racism has no place in the church. All of these differentiations that we see out there where the, we, our society is, just, is trying to turn God's house into some horrible terrorist and hate crimes because of the gospel that's given is erroneous. It's wrong. They're lies. Christ's mission was to love, to protect women, to protect the races, to get the gospel out to the Gentiles and the Jews, and that nobody was to be left outside of that. That was up to man's decision, whether man would, would, would reject the gospel of Jesus Christ or follow Jesus Christ. And that's, that also is within God's providence. But we see here how... This critical race theory today, which Donald Trump was talking about very plainly last night, he wants to, he hasn't said it yet, but he would love to get back in the office to eradicate critical race theory in all schools. He wants it totally gone, and you know they're pounding down on him because he's saying that. He wants it totally gone, completely, and he spoke about the gender thing last night. He goes last night, he says, can you imagine that they actually want to, to Joe Biden is in the midst of passing a law that he can go after surgeons, that if parents want their children's gender changed and the surgeons refuse to do it, those surgeons can actually be incarcerated or lose their, their license. And he was, he was excellent on that last night. He was talking about Judeo-Christian values also. But all these things are happening, and we're being taught here to what, what Paul is saying is to stay close to Christ. And so when we, last week we talked about the Tower of Babel, and we see that there was no differentiation there when God took and he confused the languages because they were trying to build this great big edifice to heaven. And then we see we come back at Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2, where our Lord has the apostles speaking in every unknown tongue to reach out to the races, to reach out to the nations, and to give that gospel. And it could have been what Pontus in Asia, Cappadocia, Judea. And if you read all of these cities, you see the cities of the Jews and the cities of the Gentiles. You see Rome, you see here Cyrene and other areas, Arabians and the Cretes. It was, it was open to all. And so we see here, as we left off, we had some very good discussion last week. I want to go forward that we see here how God had not only designed, created, and made us all of one blood, but Paul declares of a perfect truth that in verse 26, God hath determined the times before and the bounds of their habitation. So this brings up the question of all questions, are there things that God does not know? And we finished off last week, Romans eleven thirty six. 36, 
For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul ends up that first 11 chapters of Romans where it's very doctrinal and he goes into the last four chapters, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, these last chapters speaking about Christians' duties personally. Being kindly affection one to another. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. And so many other vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And Paul is teaching us. So here we see how Paul is building a case here at Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and now he's going to start hitting the Athenians about really what is it that they're talking about regarding these philosophers and what do the philosophers really believe about God. I want to read something here. And we... We are talking about the different uh, babbling as we were talking about last week in this quote. I did not want to leave this out. But there was, there's a quote by a pastor whose name is Ed Stetzer. He's pastor of an evangelical church up north, and he writes this regarding how God views his constitution in the Bible, his commandments, how there are so many gods being worshipped today, that mankind has totally gone against what the Lord has given us. And so this was a, a statement that I didn't get to read last week about marriage equality being in the Constitution. And this is from a pastor of an evangelical church. And I think what we can do is learn from this and just see where it's coming apart. And even in so-called evangelical churches, God's law has been totally abrogated and changed to the point where it's lost its meaning according to mankind. It's very serious. He says, Most of us reading this post have been born into a unique season in history in which our culture is moving from a Christian culture to a post-Christian Christian culture before our eyes. Whatever you think about history, theology, or exactly when this shift happened, it's clear for all of us that the world into which we were born no longer exists. This is pretty serious. Viewpoints that were widely embraced by culture just decades ago are no longer embraced. For some, this seems like progress. For others, it seems like we're losing something. Regardless, things have changed fundamentally. But is that really such a big deal? For most of the last 2,000 years, the authentic church has been countercultural. The church was certainly countercultural in the first century, even at the height of Christendom, and he puts that in quotes whenever that was, and he makes fun of that, the most conservative historians would agree that Christianity is embraced by the state was different than the authentic Christianity read about in Scripture, or that was practiced by many devout followers of Jesus. Being countercultural usually helps the church more than it hurts it. And the whole motif, get over it, he says, it's gone. The days of Christendom, he said, are gone. We don't just follow Christ anymore. We have to follow current community conscience. And you can actually see those words written in incorporation for churches in 501c3. The churches, once they sign that document, are absolutely required, that's right, to follow current community conscience. If current community conscience is not to speak up against homosexuality, if that document has been signed and the LGBTQ or ACLU would have comes into the church and your name is on that document, you got to stand by it. And, and the, part of that document also says, 
you are not to speak out against politicians that speak out against these, these matters of community conscience. Well, where are we at as Christians with this? Paul's going to teach us this morning. We see our Lord has things chiefly and perfectly in view, as we just read in Romans eleven thirty six. He has appointed and foreordained the bounds of our habitation. He even controls and has the rulers of the earth that hate Him fully overcome. Now, what Paul is saying here to the philosophers, and we're going to have a couple of quotes. We're going to find some quotes embedded in these verses. Paul is standing there talking to the Athenians and saying that Jesus Christ has never changed and the wickedness in the culture will never, never rise above God and have God made captive and Him being held in churches, held in idols, and people making their own laws. Right now, we have an illegitimate president who is a pharaoh that knows not Joseph. He has appointed sodomites to political and military positions. And have you seen the new head of the Department of Energy in charge of new forms of energy and nuclear waste disposal? His name's Samuel Brinton. He is a drag queen. And his face and his picture is, is horrifying. Here, this man has legislated, funded domestically, and international abortion. He declares the resistance to these two wicked acts of demonism and hate crimes, abortion and homosexuality. He is legislating them and he's making sure every one of these laws are passed in total defiance of God. And this wicked Pharaoh that knows not Joseph in the White House is basically a puppet. Is he going to win? He has destroyed our protection from illegals all over the world, coming in and invading our country with taking and destroying our borders. But we know this. Our Lord knows all of this, and He has set His King above His holy hill of Zion. And here, Paul is giving the Athenians the remedy of their wickedness. They're believing much of the same things. They're believing the philosophers, and he's telling them they're wrong. And this is how we plug this today into our current lifestyle. What he is saying holds true perfectly today as it did back then. He was defying the Pharisees. Paul was defying the Roman Empire, and he was defying the Gentiles in here in Mars Hill in, their, in all of their, their, their Greek philosophical lies. God laughs at this. And we have to understand that our Lord will not put up with all these lies. God speaks, He's seated in the highest heavens perfectly and justly, and His name is Jehovah Nisi, as we see in Exodus chapter 17, 13. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. That is the power that our Lord has. He can destroy all of the enemies of Christianity, those that come against His Son. In Psalm 21.9 we read, Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in His wrath, and the fire shall devour them. So basically, what we learn here is Paul is turning the tide, and here's what happens. And this is how this all comes together. Here is the remedy that Paul gives the Athenians, that they should seek the Lord. But what does it mean, happily? What does it mean, they should seek the Lord, because He's not far from them? Does that mean that He's far enough that He can't be touched? We need to seek Him. Christ is everywhere present and He possesses our reins. 
Could I ask, uh, could someone look up Psalm 139, verses 12 and 13? This is the very first we see here in verse 27. Paul gives them the remedy to the problem that they're having about wondering about existence. The question here from the, all the, the, these Greek philosophers, what is the resurrection? Who is God? Who is minding the store? And who was this Jesus Christ? That came up many times. And Paul says that they should seek the Lord. We should seek the Lord. Who has Psalm 139, 12 and 13? Beautiful. Thank you, Nancy. Look at that. He says, thou hast, thou hast covered me in my mother's room, womb. He says, the light shineth. And what we're learning here is God can be seen everywhere. The reason why it says, Paul is saying he's not far from us, it's almost like kind of like he's saying that sarcastically. He's not only not far of us, he's everywhere. We're going to learn that this morning. He sees all and we must seek after him. Isaiah chapter 26, 9. Who could look that one up? Isaiah 26, 9. With my soul have I served thee in the night, yea, with my spirit within me, while I seek the earth, but with thy presence over the earth, inhabitants of the world. Hey, praise the Lord. Thank you, Charlie. Look at that. Look at the benediction there. This is the last line of that verse. The inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Look at the joy that we have from righteousness. And when we can sleep at night knowing that we honor the Lord and we're doing what's right. You know, the antithesis of this can be found in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 15, where we read, Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us? And who knoweth us? The answer to that is the Lord can see everything. You know, they, 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 there are those that want to hide their deep counsel. You know all the wicked things we see going on in politics. Once again, we saw, if you saw Donald Trump last night, I'll give him credit. He didn't hide anything. Everything was out there on the table. Everything he talked about in the cloakrooms. Everything that he talked about in the session meetings there with Congress. He said there's nothing he held back. But all of these laws that are coming out, isn't it amazing how they're being passed? Do you know most Americans, I mean, Marylanders right now have no idea that right now that there is talk on the floor in Congress about this prenatal infanticide bill? Most people have no idea. They, I've been talking to people and telling them about it. They don't even know what it is. And they think they can hide this from God, these people behind closed doors. Oh, he sees it. Who could read Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1? Can you look that up? Isaiah 51 1. Look at that. Thank you, Faith. That's wonderful. Look at that. Ye that seek the Lord, look unto the rock whence ye are hewn. He says, Hearken to me. Ye that follow after righteousness, seek after me. And the Lord promises you will find him. And when you find him, you will know that it was he that led you there to begin with. Isn't that wonderful? 
Look at Isaiah 55, 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Look at that. Isaiah says, while he is near. Paul says right here, though he be not far from every one of us. Paul is saying as a sarcasm, he's not only not that far from us, he's right there, everywhere. There's nowhere where we can miss him. He's everywhere. You know, there are so many that seek other means of consolation. Comfort is a most precious, intrinsically and essential feature that makes it what it is, priceless. People seek comfort, and it's priceless, and that's what everyone desires. What should we be seeking? Here are some quotes from, here are some quotes from the secular, some secular uh, uh, writers and all about seeking. And I think this is very interesting. Then we're going to go back into Scripture. This is about seeking comforts. Here's one. Here's the first quote. I am seeking. I am striving. I am in it with all my heart. And really, it just seems like that's a very sad statement because it's like this person is seeking and seeking and seeking with all of his heart and never finds what he's seeking. That was from Van Gogh. Van Gogh said that. I am seeking. I am striving. I am in it with all my heart. And this brings up about seeking an old song back from the late 60s and some of the words when some of you might remember this. I looked under chairs. I looked under tables. Tried to find the keys to 50 million fables. They call me the seeker. I won't get to get what I'm after until the day I die. That's what man believes. What are we seeking? And you know that that's the way that it is. You watch commercials. You watch movies. People are always seeking some kind of higher learning, some kind of understanding. And it's what they're always finding is that every effect that we have when our eternity is dependent on our choices. Well, that's not true. Here we see Edgar Allan Poe. He has a, an interesting statement here. He says, I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity. He couldn't differentiate. What is the difference? What is the bridge between disaster and, and, and atrocity? And you can see that in Edgar Allan Poe's writings. He had some really dark writings, a lot of dark poetry, very dark. Here's another one from a German writer and sculptor. His name's Max Beckman. What are you? What am I? Those are the questions that constantly persecute and torment me and perhaps also play some part in my art. I am seeking for the bridge which leans from the visible to the invisible through reality. What dark sayings. What a horrible, horrible way to live. Seeking what is the difference between disaster, atrocity, what's going to happen in the final analysis. It's no wonder these men painted, had these paintings that were so dark and so devastating. Well, here's an on Jimmy Buffett. Searching is half the fun. Life is much more manageable when thought of as a scavenger hunt as opposed to a surprise party. That's his whole evaluation of life. That's what people are searching for. They search, they search, they search, and they search. And sadly, if you read some of the writings of Pope Gregory, I think that was back around the 16th century, Pope Gregory had many writings on how he told the bishops, he had told the, uh, the bishops, the cardinals, whatever you do, don't ever allow anyone to believe that they've ever found assurance of their salvation. Don't let them have assurance. They need to be kept on a hook. 
And it's predicated on the Catholic Church giving them their assurance, depending on what methods that they use in order to do that. I tell you what, if you're not glad you're a Christian now, and if you're not a Christian, you need to become one, because there is nothing greater than the assurance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Open to all, and it's free. And he that is free is free indeed. These are some, these are some very sad secular views of seeking. I am seeking, I am striving, I am in it with all my heart. And that's all Van Gogh had to say. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect. You know, that was one of the two, two hinge points of Greek philosophy was what caused motion. What caused things turning? What caused things to move in such beautiful, harmonious, designed, perfect harmony? What, what, what has life? Or what? It's very simple. Why do the leaves start falling off the trees every fall and not in the middle of summer? Why does the snow not come in August the, August the 30th, but it comes somewhere in December, November? Every year. As the Lord has this all put together. He's got it chiefly in view. He has it perfectly scheduled. His calendar is incredible. And, and man is still looking for the answer of what is the cause and effect. Well, let's see what some quotes about seeking from, from Scripture. How about uh, Job 23.3? Could, Lisi, could you look that one up? Lisa, could you look up Psalm chapter 4, verse 2? And could I ask... Uh, uh, Teresa, could you look up Proverbs chapter 7, verse 15? Excellent verses. And this is where our hearts need to be. What are we seeking? How are we to seek? What does the Lord show us here? Job 23, 3, who has that? Okay. Look at that. Job knows where he's going. He's going to be in front of God. He says... He says, naked came I into this world, naked shall I return. I will not curse the name of the Lord, even though his wife wanted him to. And he says, I will seek the Lord and I will be before his seat. He loves that. He longs for that in the midst of such agony. And we know all of the horrible things that happened to Job. Who has Psalm chapter 4, verse 2? Great. Paul brings out, in in the midst of torment, he brings out what we are to be seeking. How are you seeking? Why are you seeking after leasing? Why are you seeking after lies? Seek after the Lord, he says, O you sons of men, and how long will you turn God's glory into shame? Because when you seek the Lord and you glorify Paul and I'm saying these words, and they're nothing, but they're not my opinion. These are all perfectly factual, and I can prove it over and over and over again in the book of Psalms, how David turns to the Lord, even in the worst of times, and says, praise His name. Glorify His name. Proclaim His name. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And he's not saying that to a Greek philosopher. He's asking the Lord to do that. David at the time is the most powerful man in the world and he's broken over what he did with Bathsheba. And he comes back and he begs the Lord to purge me with hyssop. And he says, I am shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He goes to the Lord. Who has Proverbs 7.15? Great. Go ahead, Teresa. There you have the result. 
I came forth to diligently seek the face of the Lord, and I found Him. And I don't think anybody could ever, ever say that they didn't find the Lord when the Lord drew them to seek Him. When we are seeking God, He has pulled back the veil of darkness from our hearts, and we are not hardened as was Pharaoh. And we have to remember that in the days of this contest between Moses and Pharaoh, the little shepherd, the, the little Hebrew shepherd, so far between the conflict, let me go back a little bit, the conflict in Egypt with what happened to Joseph, so far what happened to the conflict between Pharaoh and Moses, so far the Hebrew shepherds are two and the Egyptians are O. Oh. <laughs> the Hebrew shepherds have won both wars. They're two and O. Oh. Joseph became second in command over all of Egypt. He's the one that basically pulled everything together, where Pharaoh basically sat back and did nothing. Joseph's the one that had all the authority. Moses won that war against Pharaoh. And the reason is God told him he would, because he said, well, you know, we have to look at the other side of it. Did the Lord say, well, Moses, I'm not sure. I hope today somehow, I hope somehow Pharaoh decides to follow Jesus. And I hope that he, goes, he walks the aisle and he gets an invitation and maybe he'll let you guys go. No, he tells Moses, I have hardened his heart over and over and over and over again. I have hardened his heart. We see how the hearts that are blinded are those that are hardened by God. And when we have been lightened to the beautiful gospel of Christ, we can see the plain indications of His presence among us. He burns it in our hearts to seek Him and not the false religions of the world. He says to seek the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. His children know they have constant dependence on Him. And here are some applications to consider. Paul says here in verses 27 and 28, in verse 28 he says, for in, and we're not done with 27 yet, he says, but for in Him we live and move and have our being, and certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. We are His children. Lisey, uh-huh. Right. 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 That's a total shift. And basically, that's a great point where they're the ones, they created the silver and the gold idols. They believed that they were basically creating worship. And if they could do that, they believed that they were completely invincible. And Paul, that is a radical statement because Paul turns the whole tide here. We need God for all the comforts and the bounties in our life, and He provides them. Psalm 71.21 says, Thou shalt increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. And Paul is talking to them, and he's telling the Athenians, you want to have peace in your heart, you want to know how it is to have joy, you give God all the glory because all of your bounty and everything you have is from Him. He is never far from us. In fact, He is with us always and provides His providence concerning us and the bounty to us that we might inquire Him by saying as Job, in Job chapter 5, verses 10, and 11, Job, Job chapter 5, verse 10, But none saith, Where is God my Maker, who giveth songs in the night, who teacheth us more than the beasts of the earth, and maketh us wiser than the fowls of heaven? 
That's quite an incredible statement here we read in Job, that he makes us wiser than the fowls of heaven. What we, what we know here is that God gives us what, he, what we need, even the desire to seek Him. We must trust that His providence and His results are what we, must, are what we accept in our hearts, and then when we accept these and the Lord puts them in our hearts, we praise Him. Here are some powerful and here are some very incredible quotes from a missionary, Elizabeth Elliot. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read several of her quotes, but if you're, if you're, having, a, if you're having a rough day, Go to Scripture first. You know, go to the Lord and pray. But if you get a chance, read some of her quotes because of look at what she had been through in her life. She had to say goodbye to her husband. He was only 28 years old. Jim Elliott was murdered by the very people they were going to, to give the gospel to. And look at some of the quotes that she has. Sometimes we want things we were not meant to have because he loves us. The Father says no. Faith trusts that no. Faith is willing not to have what God is not willing to give. Furthermore, faith does not insist upon an explanation. It is enough to know His promises to give what is good. He knows so much more about us than we do. And this goes right in line where Paul is saying that God is not far from us. She knew that. She knew that He was right there and she trusted Him for everything. And look at this quote. God has promised to supply all our needs. What we don't have now, we don't need now. Elizabeth Elliot. One more. It is always possible to be thankful for what is given rather than to complain about what is not given. One or the other becomes a habit of life. I think it's a very good statement. Mrs. Elliot said goodbye for a period of time to her husband and she always trusted the Lord and knew that he wasn't far. It is sad. We see here, Paul says, that they happily might seek God. What does that mean? In verse 27, if happily they might feel after him. Does anybody have any idea what Paul's trying to say? Peradventure, perhaps, maybe, right. That means basically man is looking for God happily. They're just rolling the dice and hoping he's whatever that, he make, they, that they make him out to be. And Paul is saying, no, that's not how we look at God. That's not how we understand God and we seek Him. We seek Him as He is and we search His Word and we learn about Him. We don't just make something up. We happily means, it's a means of saying maybe or used to express the possibility of hope that something is or will be the case. You remember the soliloquy from Shakespeare where Romeo says, I will kiss thy lips, happily some poison yet doth hang on them. William Shakespeare used that word here to make it, to, to, as Romeo was saying, as happily some po poison yet doth hang on them. He's wanting to, to, to kiss the one that he loves and he doesn't know what's going to happen. Happily. He, has, he says, maybe this could happen. That's used in Old English many times. It's a good word. If happily they might feel after him and find him, denotes a picture that Paul gives regarding the distorted view of God filled with man's interpretive pictures that they paint of their God and not the God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 12. Who can look that up? These are very important verses also. 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12. What does Paul say about this? Hmm. 
Who has that? Can, who can read that? Second Thessalonians two ten through two ten through twelve. There you go. Thank you. That's it. It's always good to be ahead. Thanks, Dave. Look at that. Doesn't this bring this all together? That the Lord sends the delusions. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. He's the one that gives the delusions to make these smoke screens to blind people that hate him. He gives the delusions. He gives people what they want. When they want to hate him, that's a good statement I've heard many times. People do what they really are going to do. They do what they want to do. And you know, sometimes it may not be the thing we want to do to throw all of our cares and burdens at the feet of Jesus Christ. But it's a stupid thing not to. Because we always want to be doing things on our own. We always have a better way. But when we go to Christ, what does that mean? It means that we wait on Him, that we pray. Let's just say we're angry at somebody and we've already got it made up in our mind that we're going to track that person down and we're going to fix their wagon. Well, that's a good time to get on your knees and pray and ask the Lord to calm you down and to be patient. And you never know, because many times you will find out that the very thing you were mad at is ridiculous because the person, the reason you were mad at that person, you find out that they have something really horrible going on in their life. And they too need prayer. And it's a good time to trust the Lord. Then there's just one of a million different things. And Paul is telling them, listen, you need to seek the Lord. You need to seek the Lord. He says, God is not far from us, and we must feel after him and find him. Because the express purpose of creating us with communication, senses, intelligence, and conscience is to serve him. He is not far from us because he has placed himself directly before us. Romans 1.20 says, For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. Going back to Romans eleven thirty six, Of him, through him, and to him are all things, and we by him. 1 John 4, 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. You know, and this horrible picture is made that God is just some horrible being that just wants to take his foot and crush us. He's a God of love. Our express purpose for being here on the earth is that God has revealed himself unto us as the creator, as the ruler, the ruler and the controller of the world. God has revealed himself to us in conscience. We do know that his law is written on our hearts. This is why we are commanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. So that doesn't mean do all to the glory of God 40 minutes on Sunday morning. If we can, if we can somehow, you know, straggle into church. It means everything we do, we do unto the glory of God. All things. Is that easy? 
Well, I think as we get closer to, to, to the Lord and we pray and we stay close to Him, I think it gets easier, yes, in our lives. I really do. There is no one, and not even the heathen, that will be able to say that they did not know the Lord and that they can get away with profaning His name. And that goes back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 23. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. We do not want to find out about the glory of God when it's too late. As we've read, seek, ye, seek the Lord while he may be found in Isaiah 55. Well, let's bring this. We're going to have to close here. But here's what's fascinating. This is what I really love about this message here. Paul is going back to the philosophers. And when they're talking about idolatry and God being found in the idols, he goes right back and he puts it right in their face. Look at this. We see here in Acts chapter 17, Acts, the verse 28, for in him we live and move and we have our being. That sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? In him, and it goes right along with what he was teaching in the earlier verses about creation. But guess where that quote comes from? For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul is actually quoting one of the Greek philosophers that actually said this. He's putting it right back to them and said, the philosophers that you're, you're following after with idolatry, they quoted this. Look at this. For in him we live and move and have our being. This is a quote from a philosopher, in, in, of, from a philosopher that we read here in Scripture. This is quite rare. Paul uses a quotation from the 6th century B.C. Cretan poet Epimenides of Knossos to help illustrate his teaching to the highly sophisticated philosophers at the Areopagus. That was a quote. That was a quote from a... a I can't even pronounce that right. Epimenides, Epimenides. That was one of the quotes. So he's actually going back to the Epicureans and the Stoics and saying, your very philosophers quoted wonderful things about God. They had a knowledge. They had, they had an idea of God. Did they believe him and who he really was? Probably not. But in here, what, a, what an incredible statement. For in him we live and move and have our being. Well, look at verse 28. Paul says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your poets have said. Pay, a close, pay, pay close attention, because we're going to get a second quote from another philosopher. For we are also his offspring. Look at that. There's another one. It's this incredible statement. Paul finishes this verse by another quote from one of their philosophers. For we are also his offspring. This was a quote from the Greek philosopher Eratus. Aratus that came from Paul's home region of Cilicia near Tarsus. So Paul turns the tides. He turns around. You notice how they do not come back to him and they try to make him look like he's wrong by quoting Scripture to him and trying to prove him wrong by Scripture? They're trying to prove him wrong by the Greek philosophers and he turns right around and says, well, this is what they believed about God. They knew he exists. And then he turns around and he says, we'll have to end here, we'll, we'll pick up next week. He says, for, for as much then we are the offspring of God, as one of your philosophers quoted, we ought not to think that the God has is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's devices. God is not found 
and is confined to man's creations in their temples, and he is not confined to wicked false idols. He's not in gold, he's not in silver, he's not in all of these, in all of these sculptures and these different forms that they make. God is everywhere, and he says he's not far from you. But he's only as far as away from you as he is because you won't believe. And he says we won't believe. Those who won't believe, he is very far from those. But he's so close that you seek the Lord and he may be found, as we read this morning. And so next week we'll continue on. There's a couple more verses in this chapter, and they have a lot to say. So let's finish this morning. And I can ask uh, maybe if uh, Brother Charlie, could you close us this morning? Thank you.